Hi, and thank you for joining us on Season 2, Episode 1 of Kansas Canopy, a podcast of the Kansas Forest Service. My name is Ariel Whiteley-Knoll, and I'm the Communications Coordinator for the Kansas Forest Service. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact of invasive woody species on pollinators, Part 1. Joining me today is Ryan Rastock, our Forest Health Coordinator. Thank you so much for being with me today, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about this stuff, so... I know this is a big area of passion for you, not only from a forest health perspective, looking at these invasive woody species, but then also diving down deeper and the impact on pollinators. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated uh, story. It's, it's woven pretty tightly and, and can be very complicated, but it's very interesting. Definitely. And I know, you know, a lot of people are familiar with sort of the common woody invasive species. I think they hear a lot of agencies like Kansas Forest Service, Extension, and other agencies talk about these species. But what would you identify as the major threats when we're looking at woody invasives? So in Kansas currently right now, I think my top three would, in ranking order, would be, you know, bush honeysuckle. That's the real big one. Hopefully we'll talk about how to spot that in the field. And then calorie pear, and then probably tree of heaven would be the top three right now for me in Kansas. And then there are other things on the horizon, but we don't really need to get in the weeds with those just yet. Always something coming, but I absolutely agree. Those are three really major threats to our local ecosystems. Um, I know, so September now, looking ahead to November, we are going to start to see bright red berries, a bush honeysuckle. And if anybody doesn't know what bush honeysuckle looks like, I'm going to link a couple resources in this podcast episode, but please get familiar with it. And once you're familiar with it, it's like the worst nightmare ever. It's a scourge. Yeah, it's it's really it, it becomes very dominant in the understory. And you, and then once you see it, you you really can't unsee it, you know. So hopefully if, if we do our job right, you're going to go drive <laughs> down the down the highway in November. And you're going to see it everywhere. So. Absolutely. And I think that's something kind of fun when we're talking about education for forest health is to learn to see some of these things. So then you can be a good advocate for these natural spaces, whether it's a park, maybe it's something managed by your local municipality to try to remove it. So when we're looking specifically at bush honeysuckle, how did we get here? Why is it an invasive species in Kansas? Yeah, so it's a pretty cool story. And uh, there, there, there are Primarily kind of two different avenues of how it got established, and both of them were intentional. And so some of the introductions had to do with some uh, conservation practices in the past. It was actually planted intentionally in rural areas for various purposes uh, that ended up not panning out uh, in the end, as we now know. Uh, so for wildlife purposes, uh, or in some cases, they had justification for whatever reason to plant them for bank stabilization, but they're mm-hmm. very shallowly rooted uh, rooted uh, uh, plant species, and so mm-hmm. probably not an ideal candidate for that. But, you know, you live and you learn, I suppose. And so due to a lot of these things, you'll see it in, in rural areas, kind of pockets of it really establishing in these woodlands, and then along streams and riparian corridors, right? So you can see it very thick where where people where it had been planted or established along these streams or rivers, and it can get very thick as the seed source kind of moves downstream. So. Absolutely, and I think it is, it is you know, just a little bit frightening. You can see it spread. You can see how it got there. I know we had a huge shrub when we purchased our house that was obviously intentionally planted, But what scares me is I see it near the power lines in my neighborhood. You know, I know that my shrub that I had or that the previous homeowners had, that it was responsible for spread. And I think in our wild areas especially, it's just gotten completely out of control. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you nailed that as well. You can get really, you know, really large honeysuckle, and that's the other avenue. Is there's an ornamental plant, you know, planted in these urban landscapes. I mean, it has beautiful flowers, good fragrance. Uh, the fruits are fairly attractive. It holds its foliage, which we'll talk about and right. some importance of that. It'll hold its foliage, so it's kind of green longer throughout the year. And then in these areas along, you know, easements or right of way, power line right of ways that yeah. are kind of unmaintained, you can have that 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 large, you know original plant that just produces tons and tons of fruit and then kind of watch it more or less marching down (laughs) the power lines or down the railroad tracks or or wherever Um, and you can kind of trace it back sometimes to that that really that number one plant that was that seed source yeah absolutely a very scary progression and another one that we've seen started in the landscape really got out of control and kind of has its own cool origin story is the calorie pear. How did we get started with the pear? Oh, I, I just, this is just such a cool story. I, I'm, I, I love talking about it. So basically, you know, so calorie pear, um, it's an ornamental plant introduced sometime in the early 20th century, right? Uh, the, the, the cultivar that was most well-known or most people are familiar with would be Bradford. So the Bradford pear would be this cultivar. And so the idea was you can plant this tree. It's fairly hardy. It'll grow in a lot of marginal, less than ideal conditions. So it's pretty tough. Uh, some people find that the flowers are pretty attractive. I personally think they're just kind of boring white <laughs> yeah. flowers and they're putrid. They smell yeah. awful. But, you know, the idea was that it wouldn't self-pollinate, right? So so they planted this throughout the landscape, throughout the continent. And uh, it turned out that it produces these really acute or narrow branch angles that produce what we call bark inclusions that are really weak areas in the tree. So you get enough force applied to those and then they fall apart. So anybody that's had a calorie pear, Bradford pear in your front yard and you live in Kansas, we have a high amount of wind forces yeah. and you've probably seen them failing in a storm or something like that. And so there was a response to that to try to produce then other cultivars that are maybe a little bit more resistant to storm damage. And so they introduced a few more cultivars, which then set the stage for some cross-pollination, cross-pollination and then kind of escaping cultivation into the landscape. And then yeah. another really fascinating feature about it is the, the concept of the storm damage, being highly susceptible to storm damage uh, when a tree, a tree responds, when it loses a significant portion of its crown or canopy, it needs to produce more foliage to photosynthesize. And so this is in the form of sprouting, either trunk sprouting or root sprouting. And with something like a Bradford pear, you've got the sign wood, the, the, can, the canopy portion of the tree, and then you've got the root stock. And so if you lose a significant amount of that above ground portion of that tree and it sprouts from the roots, you now have two, basically two different trees that can mm-hmm. cross-pollinate that way and establish uh, through, through the, that process as well. It also becomes meaner as it as right. it moves into the landscape, and so they'll actually produce these kind of protrusion, thorn-like protrusions and stuff, making it kind of a pain to handle and deal with as well. Yeah. And then to top it all off, you know, the survivor tree of nine eleven is a calorie pear that mm-hmm. was established. It was basically raised to the ground, and then they were able to to reestablish it. So they're very tough trees, for tough sure, to get rid of and can grow in some pretty harsh conditions. Well, and it's sort of a commentary on what we as people try to do. You know, we were joking before about I like to compare the calorie pair to Jurassic Park. (laughs) That's such a good comparison. You know, the nature will find a way because we thought that we were in the driver's seat. We thought that we were cultivating this tree that we could control. And, you know, whether people were thinking about how weakly wooded it was, whether they were thinking about later cultivars, it's unclear. But 
man, look at the mess we got ourselves into. We're pretty good at doing that, I think, you know, and yeah, I love the Jurassic Park comparison. I think we were talking earlier about how uh, the, when calorie Paris kind of naturalizes and becomes invasive in these areas, producing these thorn-like protrusions, it's kind of like a velociraptor with its, you know, with its talons coming out to get you, you know. It's ferocious and it's something that we need to get rid of. So talking about how it impacts pollinators, you know, you having an entomology background, that's obviously something you care about a lot is supporting our native insects. What does a woody plant differ than a native plant when we're specifically looking at insects? Yeah, so it's really complicated. So in some cases, um, so I think it boils down to the overall uh, reduction in floral diversity once these things become invasive. So you lose diversity there, which kind of can cascade into other things. But oddly enough, you know, to a certain point, some of these invasive plants that are, that are insect pollinated, um, they can actually provide a a temporary substitute maybe, or or a Mm -hmm. refuge for some of these pollinators. But then in in the end, you know, you could have basically a monocrop of honeysuckle or calorie pear and whatever potential benefits that might be perceived through that process or it's an it's a law it's a net loss in the end and so it's complicated because they can provide a resource for some pollinators but it's over time it becomes less right and i think a lot of people that are committed to supporting pollinators specifically in their home landscapes they're familiar with the concept of planting something for every season and so just having that from early spring to late fall that continual bloom and so as you all are going out and starting to look for, you know, bush honeysuckle and calorie pear, what you'll see is they're blooming at the same time and they're it because they've outcompeted other things. And so I think that loss, like you're saying, that loss of biodiversity is really what's going to impact the pollinators. Oh, for sure. And you can really see it conspicuously, especially in Kansas, Northeast Kansas with bush honeysuckle. So in November you know, when the leaves have kind of fallen off of a lot of our deciduous native trees, drive down I-70, just look out the window, and you're going to see a blanket of green out there, and that is that is going to be your bush honeysuckle. So you can really yeah. see how abundant it becomes, and then it's kind of not only displacing a lot of the native forbs and understory in, the, in that forested situation, but also suppressing the next generation of trees that could be establishing. So say you hit a windstorm or some pest or pathogen, emerald ash borer, for example, uh, killing a lot of these, uh, the dominant trees, then you're not really going to have in some of these situations a replacement other than right. bush honeysuckle. And so you've really lost a lot of that diversity and then a lot of the refuge that maybe some more specific arthropods or pollinators prefer some other type of tree or plant or something like that. And then all you would have would be you know, bush honeysuckle. Just the one option. And you know, yeah. our insects like to have a buffet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you were going to compare, make a good comparison to a native plant that really supports or native tree that really supports a lot of pollinators, what would be something that people, because, you know, if we're talking about removal in the landscape, you had mentioned before replacement. Yeah. What do we want to replace with? Yeah. So really what's, what's, what's suitable for the site and the, in the region for sure. But if we're talking about pollinator arthropod specific things, a lot of your oak species really provide a key refuge for those things in a lot of different capacities, right? Your lepidopters, so your moths, your butterflies, beetle, all kinds of different insects uh, will be associated with these oak species. And so, you know, from the red oak group to the white oak group, bur oaks, chinkapin oaks, stuff like that, um, you can probably, if you're kind of 
pollinator centric or arthropod centric, replacing a calorie pair maybe with one of these native oak species could net you a benefit in that regard. I think that's a great option and just thinking about the bigger picture, thinking about what overall is going to support more. So you had mentioned that we're going to start to see bush honeysuckle berries. We're going to notice that those leaves are on there longer. Could that help people at all when it comes time to control that woody species? Oh, certainly. So that so that benefit with the foliage, or foliage that that it, that that um, plant gets by having its foliage much longer mm-hmm. throughout the growing season, uh, that provides that benefit a competitive advantage for that species. But we can also exploit that because for one, it makes it easier to find. We can just see it easier in the landscape once the leaves have fallen off of a lot of our native plants or vegetation. And then two, that means that it's really exposed. And so you, you, if you're going to use a chemical control, for example, you can kind of exploit that tendency of that, uh, of say bush honeysuckle to hold on to its leaves later into the fall to make an application that might have a reduced or little or minimal or negligible impact on off target species that you don't want to kill if you were going to go the chemical route. And I think that's so important to mention specifically with bush honeysuckle because it's in wooded areas. You know, it's it, it can be easy to get a dandelion in your driveway when there's nothing around, but that's not how bush honeysuckle operates. No, it's, it's pretty impressive, really. The, the, the low light conditions that that species can establish, I mean, it's very, it's very fascinating, to be honest. It's, it, it, and partially it's because of that leaf phenology, right? So... When, you know, it does get a little extra time to photosynthesize when a lot of the surrounding or overtopping vegetation have lost its leaves, so it kind of gets that advantage there. But it is pretty spectacular. It's full closed canopy in a forest, and, and you'll see it establishing, not only establishing, but thriving. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely intimidating. So switching gears back over to our calorie pair, you know, one thing we didn't mention before, obviously the putrid flowers, if you have one in your front yard, you probably know but you may not notice them elsewhere. And I think this time of year, one thing that really pops up is pear rust. Pear rust. Oh, yeah. So that puts that puts us in quite the conundrum when you get a phone call about pear rust on a calorie mm-hmm. pear. So, you know, so if you're not familiar with pear rust, it's, it's also a very interesting thing. It's fungus and has alternate hosts, right? right. So an eastern red cedar and, uh, and a pear, a pear tree, right. calorie pear being in that. And so... I think personally that the uh, that the fruiting bodies on the alternate hosts on the eastern cedar are just these gorgeous gooey yeah. tentacles. It's they're amazing. Provide some interesting things in the spring to look at. Kind of these alien type of deals. Mm-hmm. But then you know a lot of people will get concerned if they have say a calorie pear or Radford pear in their front yard, and then the foliage starts to become discolored, and then people can be concerned about that, and then want to provide some sort of control measures, you know, to control that aesthetic issue in that tree. And so it's kind of a conundrum because in essence, you know, that we should probably be trying to replace that tree with another tree as opposed to, you know, controlling the Paris. Now that might not be a popular opinion to some people, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of where I stand with it. Right. And I'm happy to link the Paris publication, but it, like you're saying, it's a complicated issue because it's also very difficult to control. Eastern red cedars are prolific. And so, you know, when we're trying to eliminate the disease from that cycle, it's nearly impossible. Timing of sprays, very, very difficult. So maybe we just move towards something that's better suited. Yeah. So, so maybe the control measure is a one cut basil prune at the base of the tree. (laughs) 
and then replace it with something else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you want to share with people about pollinators, about supporting them, or anything else about removing these invasive woody species? Yeah, so I think one thing that I would like to talk about that I didn't really talk a lot about, right? So I am also an entomologist, and so the uh, we didn't talk a lot about Tree of Heaven, right? Yes. So, yeah. so this is a really cool an interesting species as well. It grows very fast. It mm-hmm. can establish in these really like marginal sites that are aren't you, most other vegetation has issues growing. You break open those twigs. Have you have you done the smell yes. before? So if you if you find one of these trees in the landscape, break off a twig. They're really weak. You break it off, crack it in half, and then smell it. Like how would you describe the smell? Not. Ariel? lovely <laughs> no it's kind of like rotten peanut butter yeah, if that's a thing it's off <laughs> yeah it feels wrong you know uh but but with this species you know it can establish in these areas can can do its thing that we've been talking about but it's also a host for an up-and-coming invasive insect that we're on the lookout for which would be spotted lantern fly right. so there's implications there it's which has been kind of interesting with the messaging with something like that because we've been trying to address you know, tree of heaven for a long time. And then now we've got this highly prolificous or this, this insect that can establish or impact a lot of different woody plants that kind of prefers this species. And so maybe it can help us, you know, kind of address the tree of heaven a little bit. And I think, you know, it's just kind of like we were talking about with pear rust. It's, it's a secondary problem that might help us to start that conversation about why you want to remove this tree, why you want to be really vigilant. So I love that. That's a great example. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just very, it's very complicated. It's really, really interesting to see these things come through to fruition. And so walking around the state, you know, seeing, seeing these bush honeysuckle, especially, I Mm. mean, easily probably one of the biggest threats to our forested ecosystems, native forest ecosystems here in Northeast Kansas, at least. Absolutely. So you all have your homework. You're looking for the red berries. You're looking for some pear rust. We're going to go snap open a tree of heaven branch. Uh, Lots of good activities to get you out and just get you familiar with the parks in your neighborhood, the wooded spaces. And, you know, so many of us are near waterways where bush honeysuckle has really taken over the banks and just becoming familiar so you can be a good advocate for these natural spaces. Absolutely. Do you think there's a, a way we could do a live smell test for people on, on video? With if the, we can uh, find somebody brave enough. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the tree of heaven, you know, yeah. a reaction type of video. I love that. That's a great idea. But, well, thank you so much, Ryan, for being on with me today. Thank you all so much for listening. Again, this is season two, episode one of Kansas Canopy, a podcast of the Kansas Forest Service.